Tristan. Remember, there was old, old hymns that said, thank you, Jesus, praise you, Jesus. I just love those, didn't you? Do you remember those? Those are fantastic. Thanks for reminding us of those. Well, good morning. It's good to have you with us. If you're a graduate, congratulations, and into the service, we'll have you uh, stand. We'll recognize you, but if you're family, we're glad that you're here, and uh, it was a great day yesterday, really nice, and uh, we enjoyed uh, graduate as well in our family, so we're just rejoicing in the Lord's goodness to us. If uh, you have little ones through grade four and you'd like them to be in a graded uh, church time service, you can dismiss them at this time. Just follow the herd out and then uh, make sure you pick them up when we're all done. We also, uh, you also are welcome to keep your kids here with you. We love kids and you can keep them in the service. Don't think you have to dismiss them. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Will you do that? 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It is a... uh, a good day to be back in the Word. We're in a continued study through First and Second Corinthians, so it's been very rich for us. But as it is with the, the Word of the Lord, is wherever you come in and you hear it, it does what it's supposed to do in your heart if you're ready. So the whole previous portion of the service was to get us to that point. So remember, as we begin to sing and we sing those words of praise and of confession, make sure that's the uh, the attitude of your own heart as you come, so that we're ready. Uh, then to open the word, hear what it says, what does it mean by what it says, and then how does that apply to me, and then make application. So that's our joy to do that today, as in every day. So the church has been doing now since Christ established it, so we're glad to be part of that. So we are directed our attention really to really picking up in verse 5, and it has to do with forgiveness, and we've just subtitled that, The Blessings of Letting Go. And so I'd like to read, if you would, as our habit in our section that we're going to look at today, although we're really in the introductory uh, time of this passage, we'll, d- we'll get into some of it today. But I want to make sure that we laid a very good foundation. In a moment, you'll see why. But let's look at verse 5, if you would, and read together in your copy of God's Word. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in a seat around you or reading the copy of God's Word you have that you regularly read and memorize. And I'll give you some verse cues. We'll stay together. Paul starts this way, he says, but if any have caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, verse 9, for to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things, verse 10, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, verse 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Let's stop right there. The passage before us today has to do with forgiveness. Five times in seven verses, the word or form of the word is used. Obviously, that's the emphasis. Two weeks ago when we started this section, last week we had a really fun time of child dedication, and that was a joy to just be a part of seven uh, children as we really we dedicate as parents ourselves to raise the children in such a way that they would come up to honor the Lord. But it was a joy. So we took that time off from this passage. So just a little reminder today of something that, some things that we looked at. But... Um, We started this section two weeks ago, and we noted that we really dwell in a society that knows very little about forgiveness and cares very little about forgiveness. So it shouldn't surprise us that our society is so litigious. Uh, They'll sue each other for anything and everything. It doesn't matter. It's always somebody else's fault, and I'm not going to just let it go. I'm going to sue you and have some monetary gain 
um, our society will murder each, over, each other over nothing. I think it's probably in our mind uh, the uh, police officer up in Roanoke who, uh, in, a, in a matter of road rage, a police officer uh, shot another motorist. I mean, we'll murder each other over nothing. The, you know, that hostility um, is there. And, you know, when, when we pull in front of someone on the road, and, you know, they curse us and make obscene gestures towards us. The, the hostility in our culture really is at a level that it is because that is in the human heart, that unforgiveness, that resentment, that holding on to whatever type of offense there might be, and then making sure you deliver a precise statement when you get the opportunity or gesture or whatever it is. Um, and we've moved so far, I think, from any social restraint given to us by our forefathers' faith that we just kind of sit in a culture that's there. And, and this behavior is tolerated and it's really encouraged. Uh, we see it in the movies. Those, those tickets will sell if it's revenge, if it's whatever. I mean, people will go to see that. They want to see that. That satisfies that part of them. And that's the way we expect unbelievers to act, quite frankly. That's our culture. We expect that to be in the lives of un unbelievers. What should surprise us, though, is is when we move in front of someone and that someone pulls ahead of us and they gesture to us and honk and then we see a fish symbol on the back or a real men love Jesus sticker on the trunk. And when I see that, I'm hoping that they just bought that car from a believer and not that they are a believer. So we saw last time for the Christian, that a failure to forgive really is an act of disobedience. And no matter what the issue is, a failure to forgive is really unthinkable. And, and the main reason, of course, is that we've been forgiven. So we keep that queued up in our mind all the time. So, you know, Ephesians 4.32, it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as what? God in Christ has also forgiven you. So there's the bar, see? Uh, those, that passage is the standard. You forgive because uh, Christ has forgiven you. Uh, Colossians 3.12, so those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. So who's he talking to? Talking to believers, okay? Not talking to unbelievers. We, we expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers. But to those who have been chosen of God, as Jason read earlier today, predestined and then uh, formed to do good works and all those things that we know are, the Lord has set aside for us to do. So believers put on a heart. So if you're a believer, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility. So a lot of different things we could talk about there that should be part of your life. Gentleness, patience, verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And then just this very broad application, whoever has a complaint against anyone, so there's no, you know, small clause at the bottom, except if they did this, or if they said that, just whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So again, there's the standard, the bar is very high, um, whatever the offense is, whatever the complaint is, whatever it is, uh, compassion, kindness, gentleness, uh, humility, patience, bear with one another. That's being long-suffering. We talked about that before. That's a wonderful word in the scripture. You never look more like the Lord than when you are like that. Long-suffering, whoever has a complaint, whatever it is, forgive just as the Lord forgave you. So also should you. So how does the Lord forgive you? Well, all day, every day, right? All day, every day. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 7 says, Blessed are those who are law whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Again, and we've mentioned this a few times just recently, you never look more like the Lord than when you bless someone, as we saw earlier, who's been unkind to you. You never look more like the Lord than when you are patient and long-suffering, when somebody really deserves to be reproved and you hold it back for a length of time and you endure it and let them have time to move in the right direction. You never look more like the Lord here than when you forgive. See, So you begin to resemble and, and you magnify his attributes when those things are true in your life. In fact, it comes across a little more forceful in Matthew 
So Jesus is speaking here, and he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall what? Receive mercy. If you give it, you'll get it. And then again, Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debt, as we also have forgiven our debtors. You know, here's the disciples asking Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so he teaches them how to pray, this model of prayer, how really starting at the throne and then moving down to our needs. And, and, but at the end, he says, listen, um, you know, forgive uh, our debt. That's the sin we have against you on a daily basis. Uh, as, you for, as we forgive our debtors, and then he says in verse 14, for you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, verse 15, but if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you your transgressions. So now, now there's a lot at stake here, right? And, and this is not to say that a believer will you lose justification and forgiveness uh, from guilt and the ultimate penalty for sin. Listen, you are saved forever when you come to faith. And we're not talking about losing your salvation here. This, is, this can't be the case because there'd be too many verses that would contradict it. So it has to be a passage that deals with the washing that Jesus does on a daily basis. Much like the example of when Peter's sitting at the table and Jesus wants to wash his feet and he says, you're not washing my feet. And he says, well, you don't have any part of me. And then he says, well, just wash my whole body. And he says, you don't need your whole body washed. You've already been washed, just your feet. Just the soil of the daily involvement with the world. So that has to do with that. So it's a fellowship type of forgiveness that occurs on a daily basis where Christ washes us from defilement. So that's pretty important, I would say. So we don't forgive those who your debt is against us, things that we feel are offenses against us, and we don't get that daily washing that comes from the Lord to us. So a few principles that we picked up here and really laid the groundwork for a blessing of letting go in 2 Corinthians 2.5 that we just read were, number one, you know, God has forgiven you, so you should forgive is very simple and straightforward. I don't think you can really argue with that point. It's direct so much in the scriptures. Number two, God will forgive you if you forgive. So then there's that contingency that requires your volition to be involved. And then number three, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. And that was very clear, I think, in those two passages where Jesus is directly teaching his disciples. And then James 2.13, which we will look at again in just a minute, makes it clear that if you don't forgive and you don't show mercy, you'll be chastened. So then the, the ante goes up even more. So the Lord's not just... Uh, he doesn't just say forgive because you've been forgiven and forgive if you don't forgive I won't forgive you he says you know, this is a commandment that I require you to follow and if you don't I'm going to chasten you so we looked a great, at a really great parable from Matthew 18 23 we won't go through it again today but I would say it bears repeating and rereading often uh, for all of us but the parable is one that depicts God as the sinner or God as God as the king and and then the sinner is or this slave is the sinner and, and the man who comes, this big debt, uh, he's that guy. He's the sinner. God is a king. Uh, the man who has a big debt is a sinner. And it has to do with an unpayable debt owed to the king by the slave. And, and this is heaven's view. Now, as we look at Matthew 18, it's heaven's view of the debt all sinners owe. You owe it, I owe it, the whole world owes it. An unpayable debt. This slave comes to the king. He owes an unpayable debt. And in the parable, Jesus is telling Peter and his disciples uh, that this is an incomprehensible debt. It's a massive debt. We looked at it last time just how much it would be in today's uh, money in comparison to what you would make on a daily basis. So it's huge, not payable. And the slave, of course, like the rest of the world, could never repay this debt. And, and then the sinner comes before God, the slave, and he's convicted about his unpayable debt. The, the, the king says, listen, you owe this huge debt to me. Um, and he says, I can't pay. And God tells him the, the obvious, you know, you have no means to repay me. There's no way. You know, the slave says, I'll, give me time. I'll, I'll pay you back. God says, you know, the king says, there's no way you can possibly repay this debt to me. So uh, you're going to be sent to hell. You're going to be sent somewhere where you will pay whatever you can, even though you'll never pay me what you owe me. You're going to be set forever there because there's no way for you to 
repay what you owe. And so I'll sell you and I'll sell all your possessions and your family and then you'll pay back, but of course it's an unpayable debt, so you're never gonna pay what is owed, you're never gonna be out of debt. And so it has to do with hell and it, and it really it connects with uh, the whole world and what the debt it, that is owed to the Lord by the whole world and really how it's able to be paid and how it's unable to be paid. And so this king is compassionate when he sees the man's willingness, you know, hey, give me time, I'll pay. You know, I, I, I agree, I have this huge debt. He's not saying I don't have it, I have it. And, and give me time and I'll pay. He forgives him the debt, an unpayable debt, and, and the points are very important for Peter and the disciples uh, to understand the enormity of the debt owed by every man and the compassion of the Lord. Because in previous passage, Peter had come and said, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? And, and the Lord says, no, seven, seven times, 70 times, seven times. And it wasn't that, you know, and then you count up and then you get to that point and then what? It was you forgive until you've completely forgiven. That was the idea. And so then he comes here and he says, listen, don't forget you owe this unpayable debt. And so the Lord forgave this debt. But what happened after that, and here's the deal, what happened after that is so embarrassingly absurd and outrageous as to be almost unbelievable if we didn't identify with him so closely. So this slave who's been forgiven an unpayable debt does something so outrageous that we, it would, we would look at it and just say that's impossible, except we know exactly what that feels like because we identify with him way too closely. And here's this. So the slave, catch this, the slave who'd been forgiven this massive debt turns around and won't forgive someone this small debt. And everybody sees him do this. This egregious display of unthankfulness and ungratefulness and pettiness and vindictiveness of this forgiven slave. So this is a forgiven slave. So this is, this is a connection to a believer, someone who has an unpayable debt, recognizes the debt and the king forgives and then turns around and won't forgive and it it is so embarrassing that everybody who sees it runs to the king and they tell him about the actions of this person who they know have been forgiven an unpayable debt and the king's response is so hard to hear and so unadorned and so candid that it bears repeating here it is matthew 18 34 and his lord moved with anger handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Verse 35, my heavenly father will also do the same to you. Who's he speaking to, beloved? He's speaking to his disciples. The, the question was asked by Peter. So, do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the, from the heart. And again, we see, this goes right, it dovetails perfectly with everything else we've seen. You want mercy from God? You show mercy. And if you want forgiveness from God, you give forgiveness. And if you don't if you don't give it, don't expect it. And the infraction is so disgraceful and it's so shameful and shocking that the Lord warns those who are forgiven so great a debt that if they don't forgive, if they don't show mercy, they'll be chastened. That's how important it is, okay? It's a big deal. Now, you wouldn't think it was a big deal by the way people hang on to pettiness, even in the church. But it is, I would think, a major issue with very severe results if we don't comply. Now, we, we've looked at suffering as an evildoer not that long ago, and you can go back and check those messages out about, as a believer, when you do evil things, you can suffer as an evildoer. Um, and, and Peter says, don't do that. Don't do the things that make you suffer as an evildoer because you've been washed. But here's the deal. That's, what's hap that's what happens many times in the lives of believers because they will not forgive, and it's so shocking and unbelievable and petty and vindictive when they have been forgiven such a huge debt of sin and continually are washed from the daily defilement of the world. So this is a big deal. 
And what we noted there when we finished that is this. If, if what you're seeing in your life is the mentality of the culture and the unjust slave in the parable, and you think you don't need to forgive, or you find yourself holding on to offenses, and they could be legitimate offenses. I'm not saying that these are, oh, maybe a slight, or maybe you, you perceived it as a slight. I'm talking about legitimate offenses. Somebody does something very offensive to you, or says something offensive to you, or about you, okay? And you're holding on to that. You're the wronged party, okay? And those heart attitudes, you need to understand, uh, those heart attitudes, apart from being directly in sin, and losing out on the daily forgiveness God offers through Christ, and creating an environment where you may be chastened by the Lord will also produce some things in your life. And, and we saw a number of passages that show uh, what this heart's attitude will do. A couple of things, and we won't look at them in depth. I gave you scripture references that would connect to these. But it's going to keep you chained to your past. And it's going to change your character. And it gives Satan an open door. We even see that at the end of our passage in 2 Corinthians 2. We don't want to give Satan an advantage. We're not unaware of his schemes. And it interferes with your communion with God, just obviously. And, and you can grow and you can nourish and you can fertilize if you have this attitude of the world and you're hanging on to pettiness and you're hanging on to unforgiveness, even with uh, legitimate slights. If you're hanging on to that, see, you can grow and you can nourish and fertilize the root of bitterness and unforgiveness becomes its own whip for you. And Hebrews says that through this attitude, many be defiled. And we looked at it last time, in your own home, among your own family, your children, your spouse, in the church, among acquaintances, the watching world, the list goes on. You hold on to unforgiveness. People know you were forgiven a huge debt and you hang on to these petty things. Many get defiled and you can fertilize the root of bitterness in your own life. And we saw at the end of that a really simple way to avoid all those things. And what is it? Forgive. You know, there's only one person chained in the prison of the past. Guess who it is? It's you. And conversely, forgiveness opens the door and lets the prisoner come out. And the prisoner, of course, being you, and it destroys that root of bitterness and sets you free from your past. See, you, you're in that past. They offend you every day. Guess what? It's not affecting them. It's affecting you and your family, your character, your testimony, what the Lord can do with you. It's not affecting that other person, but they offend you constantly because you won't let that go. You're in a prison you made for yourself. So that begs this simple question then. And this is where we ended last time. Why would you sentence yourself to be in any other place than in the maximum blessing from the Lord? I mean, what kind of foolishness is that? You're putting yourself willingly in a place apart from the maximum blessing of the Lord. You're doing it when he clearly said that's precisely what's going to happen if you hold on to offense, see? What benefit is it to cut off the benefits of the full, rich relationship and fellowship with God that he desires with you? See, and there, obviously, rhetorical questions, there are no benefits to that. Why would you do that? You wouldn't want to do that. But we hang on to that, and pretty soon it becomes camouflaged in our life. That root of bitterness is down deep, and you don't see that. See, But I, I've prayed the Lord would have uh, opened up our own hearts, all of us, that we could understand how this works. See, Now, please think about this. So, when we became a Christian, God put some good things in us, right? He gave us gifts. We've looked at this over and over again. Uh, we all have spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. You know, in Christ Jesus, we, we are a new creation. If you, of course, remember Paul's addressing of the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, 4, many, uh, many months, many years, a couple years ago. Anyway, 1 Corinthians 1, 4, he says this. Paul is talking about who they are. Now, he's getting ready to really take them to task over a bunch of different things. And we looked at all those things in 1 Corinthians. But before he even starts that, 
he talks to those who are believers. He says, listen, you know, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. So there's grace there that's given to you. And we talked about that. I won't go back through it again. That in everything, he starts to kind of illustrate what's he's, talk, what's he's talking about. Verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him, everything. So a very broad, painting with a very broad brush. And then he says, in all speech and all knowledge in particular, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so you're true believers, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a pretty good position to be in. So good gifts, good things given. So he's reminding them that they have all of the information, that's that word knowledge, they have all the information they need to live the life God has called them and instructed them to live. So there's a list an academic list, they understand all of that knowledge. You have the general information. Academically, you know what to do. Now, we know that it wasn't practical because otherwise Paul wouldn't have had to write this letter, okay? But it certainly was there. The information was clear. Paul was there preaching 18 months. So whatever was unclear would have been clear at the point that Paul uh, was there. But what we really want to see is not just this academic list of knowing what to do, what we want to see is what Paul encouraged Philemon to do in a personal letter to this guy in Philemon 6. Paul's dealing with issues between two brothers in Christ. And so it connects to what we're talking about. And there's a forgiveness that needs to go on uh, by, from a man called Onesiphorus. And so Paul is writing him a letter. It's a very personal letter. It is a wonderful letter. We studied it early when I came here. Um, but it's a blessing to read. And you should, you should read it and think about what's actually going on behind the scenes. But in verse 6 it says this. Here's what Paul says. And I pray... So this is Paul's prayer for uh, this guy and this fellowship. He goes, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you in Christ for Christ's sake. So what Paul is praying for, he's praying for a connection between the good things that they know to do, which is what he told the Corinthians they had. They have, a, they have some things they know they should do. He wants a connection between the good things they know to do and the application of those things, see? Because the noun of 1 Corinthians 1.5 is the former, that's this knowledge of the good things. And the noun of Philemon is the latter. It's th this noun is epignosis, full knowledge, deep knowledge, rich knowledge, experiential knowledge. I want you, Paul says, to have experiential knowledge. This is the knowledge that through personal acquaintance with the truth and application of the truth. It's the knowledge that comes through experience. Paul is saying, Philemon, you know, if you forgive this guy, you're going to immediately experience one of the good things that has been given to you and put in you, and it's called forgiveness. I've given you the ability, and I've given you the, uh, that information that you should forgive. You have the ability to do it, and you know you should do it, and you're going to be able to experience it. You're going to have more than just an awareness of that, that gnosis, the knowledge of forgiveness. You're going to have epignosis. That list of knowledge we saw, like in 1 Corinthians 1.5, more than just the list of what to do. Philemon will have epignosis, experiential knowledge of forgiveness. That's what Paul says. I pray that that's going to be your experience. As for Paul, it's Paul's prayer for Philemon, I would say to you and propose to you that's Paul's prayer for the entire church. We're not just to have the knowledge that forgiveness is what we should be doing. As C.S. Lewis says, everybody thinks forgiveness is a grand thing until they have something to forgive. But the fellowship of your faith may become effective. All the things that you know in your head become the reality of your actions and then the fellowship, that's the church relationship with each other, has some positive outcomes. That's what it means to be effective, see. Intergase, a Greek compound adjective, intergase. That's where we get our word energy, but it's two words. It's with work. It can mean powerful. Here it seems to indicate 
a product that's beneficial. What comes out of work, that product, Paul says, you're going to be effective. You, you take what you know to do and actually begin to do it, and then you become effective as a group. Those things become dynamic inside you. Paul's obvious point here, do, do you know how to get the knowledge of the good things that are in you? Paul says, put them to work. You, know, you begin to find out the tremendous goodness God has put in you when you walk in obedience to the will of God. Love covers a multitude of, guess what you have to do to experience the love that God has given you to do that? You're going to have to cover something, right? In order for the flock to be effective, in order for the church to be effective, the things that you know to do, and this is just obvious, right? I mean, I'm not like showing, telling you some profound thing. I think that we understand this fairly well. When you do the things you wouldn't normally do, you become effective in your faith. Okay. The hard things, okay? When there is something to forgive and there has been a legitimate offense and you let it go, that's when you begin to be effective. Don't think just because you know all those rules and you are aware of what the Lord requires that somehow you're effective in being spirit-controlled. You're not. If you're holding on to offense, I'll just tell you straight up, you are actually right now in sin. You're, you are toying with the fact that the Lord could chasten you, and you're certainly in a place where he's not on an interacting basis forgiving your daily defilements, okay? That's just straight up. I don't, there's no way we can look at that and say that's not how it is. And you can release all of that and get right back on track by doing the things experiential health and knowledge does. You know, you see the things in your own life that only God can do. You're doing the things that you wouldn't normally do. And God giving you the capacity to forgive. So forgive somebody and experience it. And we've all seen the videos of you know, a guy or girl coming down, you know, a mountain with deep powder. You know, we've got friends here who live in Colorado. They do this regularly. And uh, it's a tough life, but somebody has to do it. And uh, with all the beauty and exhilaration, you know, that's there. We've all watched those videos, you know, with the scenery and the excitement. You know, most of us read stories and seen pictures of, you know, the perfect hunting or fishing trip, um, you know, with all the excitement of planning and travel and, and, uh, and the scenery and the itinerary and the harvesting and all the stuff that goes on. And ma many of us have watched, you know, the Masters Tournament, if that's your thing, you know, with the birdies and the eagles and the long putts and all of that, the incredible shots. And, you know, most of us have watched the Final Four, you know, with all of the adrenaline, all the effort. You know, we've been caught up in the, in the come-from-behind wins, you know, uh, or close track meet, close to my own heart. You know, a, a championship always decided by the 4x4. Four four. You know, everything's right up tight to the end, and you got, you got eight teams out there or more. They're running the 4x4, four four, and it's all going to come down to whoever wins this 4x4. Four four. You know, you, you get caught up in that or a squeeze play or a walk-off home run that ends a baseball game. You know, that's fantastic stuff to do. You know, but there's a whole lot of difference between seeing the video and actually coming down the mountain, right? I mean, you know, a tremendous difference between looking at the pictures in a book and coming back to base camp after a day in the wilderness being successful, right? And, there, you know, there's a world of difference between sitting on the couch and eating wings and shouting at the television, you know, and the thrill of taking the final shot with only seconds left or, or you know, taking the final handoff and running a PR split, which wins it for you, or, you know, flawlessly timed slide or, uh, you know, a perfectly placed hit. There's a lot of difference between watching that and doing that. There's a certain one-dimensional flat knowledge you get from the book or the video or the TV, and it can't be related to what you get when you actually do something, right, in the moment. And that, I would say, is the difference between gnosis, Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 1.5, the knowledge of what to do, and the epignosis that Paul prays for for Philemon and for the other church believers there too, which is the reality of the spiritual realm. Actually physically doing it. It's the difference between knowing what to do and actually doing it that's the difference between all those things we just talked about. 
I mean, you can read the words on the pages of the Bible that define forgiveness, and you can read the words that tell you to extend grace and mercy, and you can read the words that describe God's love for, to you, and God's love and how to be of one mind, and you can listen to a sermon, and you can read a book, and you can watch a video, and you can go to a marriage seminar or whatever, but you're never going to have epignosis or the deep knowledge of forgiveness until you what? Until you forgive. You can read about it as the day is long, Okay. And you can see it in the scriptures and you can hear people talk about it. But you're never going to know it until you do it. And that's what the Lord expects you to do. What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? When you read the word every single day, beloved, that should be in your mind. Okay, what is he saying? What does that mean? And now, not what it, does it mean to me. What does it mean? Okay, what did it mean to the original reader? That's what it still means. What does that mean? Now, how, does, how can I apply that? And that's how you interact with the word in an appropriate manner, see? You forgive and experience it. That's how you get to know every good thing God's put in you. And that principle applies to everybody in this church, okay? Everybody. Members, pastors, Sunday school teachers, deacons, Awana workers, husbands, wives, you know, brothers, sisters, dads, moms, on and on. Everybody, okay? That's how that works. So Paul says in 5 and 6, he says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you. Why? Why? What's the last part, beloved? Again, this connects us everywhere. Paul says, I want you to have epignosis. I want you to have this practical, actual knowledge of forgiveness. What's the last words? For Christ's sake. Again, forgive for Christ's sake. Give grace for Christ's sake. You, you've been given those things. Give them. The bar is that high. You've been forgiven an unpayable debt. Forgive payable debts. So Paul says, I pray that you have the knowledge of every good thing that's in you, and I know that you want all of this, he says, for Christ's sake. That's implied. In other words, when you forgive, and I think this is the other part of that, for Christ's sake, when you forgive, you're concerned with handing over glory to Christ, right? I mean, when you do something you wouldn't normally do, and you forgive an actual offense, you make Christ look great. See, people say, I want to glorify God in my life. Well, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good desire, I want to glorify God with this ministry. Listen, you only glorify God to the extent that you make his attributes visible through your life. Just doing something in the name of the church or Christ or whatever doesn't automatically mean that you're glorifying your maker. You only glorify your maker to the extent that they see his attributes through you. And that's the whole point here, see? You would do it for Christ's sake in order to give glory over to him. You do it unto him as, to, as if you were doing it to him, see? And so there's really two parts to that whole thing for Christ's sake that's really true in the Christian life. You know, with all its deeds and with all your joys and with all your work, with all your responsibilities, that's, that's for the glory of Christ, right? That's what you want it to be. It's for Christ's sake, for Christ's names, for Christ's praise, that he's going to look great. And, and then we so, notice so carefully our own experience of forgiveness through Christ should be the other part of the whole, the whole for Christ's sake part, right? Because... Our forgiveness from and through Christ, see, should be prompting a humble, gracious response. You know, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, again, so those who have been chosen of God and holy and beloved put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, for Christ's sake, see. And quite frankly, if you understand this and you're devoted to Christ's glory, then you're going to forgive, right? I mean, you can't say in one moment, you know, I want to do everything for the glory of Christ. 
but I don't think I'm going to forgive you. You know, I want to do everything for the glory of Christ, but I'm not going to extend grace to you in this area or whatever it is. You can't say that and be honest, okay? Um, what you have to say is, I'm not going to forgive you, so Jesus, I'm not really interested in your glory at this point. And that's a hard thing to say, right? But that's exactly what you're saying, is to be real. And quite frankly, if you understand this and, and, and you're grateful for the forgiveness you received and that you receive every single day, you're not going to say, I'm not going to forgive you because you would have to say in the same breath and with the same thought, Jesus, I'm going to embarrassingly and outrageously and incomprehensively disregard the unpayable debt that you have paid for me. And you become just like that unjust slave and that's really bad company to be in. Because that's what you're saying when you refuse to extend grace to someone in an area where you disagree or where you've been offended or, or you're, you're making you know, a very clear statement. At this point, I don't care about the glory of Christ and I don't care about the graciousness of my king. I'm interested in my vengeance. I'm interested in my opinion. I'm interested in serving me and nursing my own hurt. See? So with these obvious facts, knowledge of forgiveness that Paul knows they have and having taught them for 18 months, see, he wants them to experience forgiveness. So he draws to their mind something from the recent past. So look in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. And he says this. If any has caused sorrow, he's caused sorrow not to me, but, it's, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Let's pause right there. So you can already sense that something's going on, right? Somebody has done something and somebody's holding it you know, as an offense. There's something going on there. Somebody's remembering offenses that were done. Paul's addressing it, and we're going to get to what it is in just a minute. So there's been offense. Someone has created sorrow in the church by doing something. Um, that's the Greek verb, lupeo, perfect active indicative. So it's a harbored unhappiness. So it's established in the lives of some at the church. So it describes the present reality of some in the church, dwelling on a heaviness, dwelling on a sadness, and that's what's happening here, that there is a continued harboring of a situation. Paul says, um, if any has caused sorrow, so he's being very general, and we'll look at what, who he's talking about in a minute. He's caused sorrow, not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much uh, to all of you. So this is the situation, a dwelling on an infraction of a certain person and the trouble that they caused. Now, Paul makes it clear, you know, he never caused, this person never caused me to harbor animosity, so I'm not included in your group. I'm not holding on to something uh, that happened and it's, it's still bothering me. So, but it appears to be pretty widespread in the church to one degree or another. That's why it says to all of you in some degree or another. In other words, unforgiveness smolders in some people. It's very deep. And, and in others, it comes up a lot more and they talk about it a lot more one way or another. You're hanging on to an offense, he says, but both are wrong. So that's why Paul says in some degree to all of you, you're hanging on to this. All right, something happened in the past. You're still dwelling on it. It is in that perfect uh, tense. So we, we have this idea that it's, it's established, okay? Now, Paul isn't going to point fingers at individuals, okay? He's not going to say you and you and you in the church are doing this. Um, he doesn't say that. He just says, whoever you are, it wasn't me. I'm not included in this group, but I know there are some of you uh, who are included. So Paul says, to whatever degree you're still hanging on to this, this next part is for you. So that's really the statement. If any has caused sorrow... He's caused sorrow, not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. So he just establishes this connection, and they know what he's talking about. We don't have direct knowledge, but we have an idea, and we'll look at it in just a second. Paul doesn't mention the name of the person who caused the problem, but what it does is it appears to connect us back to 1 Corinthians 5.1. That just seems to be the obvious connection. 
Now, the Bible explains the Bible, and I've told you many times before that, you know, as you read through the Bible, make some notes. As you continue to read through the Bible yearly, you're going to find a lot of your questions are going to be answered. This is one of those things where you can say, hey, this is probably talking about somebody that we talked about before because a lot of the same words are used, and you'd be right. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, and if you want to look, if you want to look there, uh, you can. So there's an individual here, and Paul really makes it clear when he says in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 2, he says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So now you've got a little bit more clarifying statements going on here. So there's some things that are being harbored in the hearts of some of you by someone who caused some sorrow. And this person who caused the problem, there has been a punishment inflicted by the majority on this person. So now we get a little bit more clarity about perhaps who we're talking about. And I think we can look at 1 Corinthians 5. And, and what we have here is a situation of sexual immorality that was actually shocking to unbelievers in the church. Now, when the sin of the church shocks the world, that's a problem. Okay, now, of course, we're aware that the world waits for people in the church to mess up so they can say, aha, you know, and we've seen some pretty significant mess ups. So the world has lots to say about that. But the reality, I think, of the problem, which it gets much worse when the church won't recognize the issues and deal with them biblically. So you may have the big blow up. And it's interesting for me, for, for, unredeemed, for the unredeemed, to like, ah, see, you know, when, when we're redeemed and, and we're clay and we do fail, and, but the world's pointing fingers, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, when I see this situation, I'm thinking, you got a lot more problems to worry about than pointing at this dude who, who messed up, okay? I mean, you're, you're sitting in the lap of the evil one. You don't even have a choice whether you sin or not. And this guy obviously committed a, a grievous infraction and harmed his testimony and harmed his testimony to the church. Nobody's soft selling that. But the fact of the matter is, you know, when, when unbelievers are pointing their fingers, that's pretty tough for me to swallow, uh, considering what's going on in their own lives. But the bottom line is this. So, you know, the real problem is, is when there's a big mess up in the church, the big problem is when the church won't recognize it and they won't deal with it. That, that becomes the huge issue. But that's precisely what had happened in Corinth. See, and, and like the modern church, it, it wasn't as if they didn't know what God's standards were or are. They, they know. Uh, they, they knew because the Apostle Paul had written to them in a previous time. You know, look at verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. See what Paul says. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. Remember, we talked about this. We said this. This is a letter we don't have. So uh, the sorrowful letter is the one he's talking about. We don't have this letter, and we've talked about that before. Paul says, I wrote to you previously uh, not to associate with immoral people. I, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world but actually i wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person a covetous person an idolater a reviler a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one so paul says in first corinthians which would be our first letter i previously wrote to you and told you not to do it so we know that there's some other letter we don't have and some communication coming back from the church to paul because he says i've heard and so we understand some things are going on here as Paul was the one who established the church. He's actually overseeing it. And so the problem was so bad that he had to write to them about it before and give them instructions on how to handle the situation in the church. And it was very similar to the instructions that he gives in 2 Corinthians 3.6. And you can look there on your own time, which we may look at next time as the Lord wills. But they knew what to do. They'd already heard from him. They had him as their teacher from the beginning. He planted the church, but in spite of all the good teaching and in spite of the witness of the Holy Spirit in their lives, uh, they had allowed immorality in the church. And their background, of course, 
as we talked about this before, coming to faith was, was saturated with sexual immorality and, and, satu- and, and that saturated the culture they were living in and, and that culture had encroached. We call the, the culture salting the church instead of the search, church salting the culture. So that's going on. And they're having some problems disregarding that lifestyle once they became believers. And so Paul's being carried along by the Holy Spirit to address this issue of purity in the church. And yet, if the church was to be pure, they had to say goodbye to immorality. And, and that's where our guy from 2 Corinthians 2, 5, and 6 comes in. Now, Paul's going to address this issue of purity in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. And you can look there if you would. And, he's gonna, and he tells the Corinthian church what to do. And again, that becomes a model on what churches are to do. So this isn't just in isolation. It's not in a vacuum where Paul says, okay, this is what we're going to do. It becomes this model. Paul says, I'm not even there. I can tell you what's going on. I know what's going on in the church. I'm going to tell you what to do about it. So that becomes this model for us as we look at uh, what happens in the church when unrepentant immorality is going on. And what's the instruction then for disciplining an immoral member of the body of Christ, an immoral Christian? And this becomes that passage along with some others that we'll look at. So 1 Corinthians 5.1, look there with me. We'll read it. Because this helps set the context for why Paul, what Paul is saying to these believers here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1, he says, it's actu- It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Two, verse 2, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Verse 3, For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord, verse 4, Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed, verse 8. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, I just read that. I didn't mean immoral people of this world or the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, he says, verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any called brother so-called brother, if he's an immoral person, a covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, verse 13, but those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now stop right there. So here's the situation, very ugly. Nobody wants to have to deal with this. Nobody wants to see this in the church. It is very uncomfortable to see it to talk about it, to even read it. It's one of those things where if you didn't preach verse by verse, you may never get to this passage because this is not fun. But it is what it is, and we do teach verse by verse, so we had to go through it. And I'll just remind you of a couple things here with this passage because this is the person we're talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Back at verse 1 here, 1 Corinthians 5, he says this, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. And it's interesting to note that this problem, as with the problem of disease of division, came to him by way of a report. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 1, 11, uh, Paul noted he received uh, information concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So there are some notes going back and forth, or perhaps some people traveling, and they're reporting to Paul what's going on in the church. And so he's dealing with this. 
So when he says it's actually reported that there is an immorality, there is immorality among you, what we have here, this is in your notes, this is a sense that this is the general and continuing report that's going on from the church. So it's not just like a one-time thing. He's like, I've heard this, this is continuous, and I've watched you then, this is implied, and what's going on here. And likely he's finding out about the problem from someone at Corinth. Now it isn't possible to keep the church pure from this type of behavior if it doesn't know that it's happening, okay? So it, the church has to watch out for that type of activity, you see? I mean, part of the one another's in the church is to, is to encourage one another and, and uh, pray for one another and bear one another's burdens, and we need to know what's going on. So, you know, if you don't know what's happening, then it's impossible to deal with it. So it has to watch for the type of activity that's like this and be concerned about preventing it. That's the whole point. That's pro- prophylactic emphasis, I think, of passages like this. It may not be going on in the church at this point, but it is the emphasis that it could be, and this is what you'd have to do, and by reading it, maybe perhaps you will avoid it. So that's the benefit, I think, of reading passages like this when things are still uh, good. So, but there's this general continuing report, and Paul says it's commonly being reported, a continual report that there's immorality among you. Now, of course, it wouldn't seem as if that it would be the desire of the church to be known as a church of immorality. But this is a continuing report that this is a church of immorality. So that's not a great thing to be known by. But that was the deal. And not only that, but Paul says, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. So the problem was an immorality and that was even shocking the unredeemed. Now, this is a, this is a scriptural paraphrase for a stepmom. So we've talked about this at length when we went through it. I won't go back through it again, but you can go and, and check those passages out. But this was likely the case that this is a man uh, had been married and perhaps his first wife died, but he had this son and then he has a, 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 a new relationship with, with uh, someone who's not the son's uh, mom and so the son is, is older now and he has uh, some type of relationship that led to a divorce and, and now they're together and this is an ongoing relationship. And so it's just ugly and everybody's talking about it because it just doesn't happen and it doesn't happen too much in the, in the Gentile world either. And so we won't go into depth of this because Paul doesn't and um, they know who this is. They know what's going on here. And it appears to be the man spoken about here having this relationship is a believer and, and the woman does not appear to be a believer. And we can get that sense when we see how Paul instructs the church to deal with the situation. We'll look at that in a second. But whatever the exact situation is, the reaction of the church is, the, is what's at issue with Paul. So Leviticus 18, if you go back there, it covers all kinds of relationships within families, and I would refer to you to those passages to fill out your understanding of what's permissible and what isn't permissible. I'm not going to go into them here today because there's a very wide variety of ages here, and I don't want to, uh, and, and maturity among the young ones. So, uh, but here, the Corinthian assembly was in this terrible, flagrant rejection of the simple commands of God. Sin had taken over this guy's life, and he's now living in an improper relationship with this woman who's not a Christian, who, who was his father's former wife, and the church was tolerating it. That's the main problem now that, um, that Paul was having. And, and it wasn't so much that of the sin that shocked Paul, it was the church's reaction or toleration to it. And that's the thing he's having the most trouble with. Now look at verse 2. Uh, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now, the whole arrogant issue, this pride issue, is just popping up over and over again in this church. He's dealt with it already, and it's at work in this situation. And whether they thought it was really progressive, you know, like progressive mystical churches today that accept everybody and everything as equal, and and it's all worthy of merit, no matter what your relationship is, no matter what your your gender is, whether it's fluid or whatever, everybody's equal, everybody's good, you know, maybe it's like that, you know, or maybe it was their freedom in Christ run amok, or maybe they're just proud of how gracious and kind and tolerant, you know, they are, 
you know, open doors, open minds, you know, uh, all of that kind of thing, or they're just, you know, shoving Paul off with the shoulder, just saying, hey, you know, we got this, you know, I know what you told us before, you gave us some, some instructions, you know, but uh, don't worry about it, Paul, we'll take care of this, what, whatever it may be, and it could be any number of those combinations, uh, it, it was manifesting itself, and the pride is present and active and indicative. You, you've, you've been boasting. This is the actual occurring thing going on in the church. You've established this prideful attitude and you're continuing to boast. It's the reality of the church. And so it's best to see this as an ongoing current state of affairs, both the affair, uh, the improper immoral relationship, because affair sounds too nice, the, the immoral relationship and the pride that's going along with it. Hey, we're, we're cool. I mean, everything's good. And so Paul says, but instead of continuing with this pride, which is your undoing, you haven't mourned instead. That should have been your reaction, he says. That's the proper attitude, and that would have led to the proper action for this person. You mourned, pentheo, verb pentheo, which is one of the words associated with what happens at a funeral. You were grieved to the point of loss. So Paul says, instead of standing there and being proud about your situation, you ought to be you know, on your face on the ground weeping as if you suffered the loss or the death of a person. See, your heart should be grieving because that's what's happening in the church. That's how you should feel about it. And maybe that's something that the modern church has lost in some ways. I think some churches compare well with the situation in Corinth. And many of the Protestant denominations and some of the liberal progressive churches perhaps don't realize it. But in adopting a worldly view concerning gross immorality and by ordaining immorality and accepting immorality, I think they could use this word from Paul too. Instead of being prideful, you should have mourned. Instead of thinking you were so progressive, you should be on your face like you lost someone close to you. That was the correct response. You don't have the correct response. I think they could use that word from Paul right now. See, you think you're you think you're so uh, cosmopolitan, and man, this is just really great. We're very we're very open, and you know we don't judge anybody. Well, listen, it's impossible to live in the world and not have discerning spirit and say, okay, this is right according to the Word of God, and this is not. But this is what's going on. I think modern churches could receive this word from Paul, but uh, you know. You have not mourned instead, that's what Paul says. And I really think that when the church gets to the place where it doesn't mourn over sin, it's really on its way out. I mean, as, as we look at, I think if we look at Revelation 2 and Thyatira, you know, he says, you know, some of you are doing good, but yeah, there's immorality in the church, and if you don't straighten it out, I'm just going to come and take the lamp away. That's when churches close up. I mean, you, we're, not, we're not worried about immorality anymore, and you're not worried about sinfulness. You're, doesn't mourn, you're not mourning over it, and you're trying to do something about it. Listen, that, that's a bad place to be. We, when we cease to be shocked by sin, we really lost our defense. And it's always that danger, and there's always the criticism, of course, from people from the churches I spoke about a minute ago that condemn churches, of course, that talk about sin and confront issues, and condemn churches who deal with people as if somehow that's an incorrect approach to do in church. And, you know, I've heard it many times, and I'm sure many of you have ministered, you know, that's why your church is small, because you deal with that kind of stuff. And I think to myself, as if somehow being huge and disregarding the Word of God is the better option. Are you kidding? I mean, the Lord doesn't care about that, right? He cares about purity. He cares about faithfulness. What does the word say? Okay, what does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? That's, you know, and it just really continues to confirm to me there's really a blind spot in the modern Christian church, just like there was a blind spot in this, in this Corinthian church. As if, you know, we're here on Sunday just to give a Sunday morning sermonette and, you know, give out a little soundbite and help the congregation feel better and, you know, a video and a few cliches and some edgy acrostic, you know, so that you can remember, you know, T-E-A-M, you know, and go home with this really cool message that has nothing to do with purity and faithfulness and whatever, see. If, 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 if your message had a cold, the scripture wouldn't have caught it because you didn't spend enough time there to transmit it. So, you know, 
I know you know this, and I know that you understand what it means to do one another's. And this isn't just a Sunday morning, Sunday night operation, Wednesday night, whatever. You know, we're here to get involved in each other's lives. That's what it means to be to do the one another's. When you come through the Be the Church class, we talk about one another's for quite a bit. Every, just about every place you see them in the scripture. Bear one another's burdens, confess one another, make sure that the church is what God intended it to be, and it, that involves purity. And here's what is so obvious. You know, we can't let, you know, read Paul's instructions without coming away with the understanding that there's really no place in, for the toleration of sin in the church. Not that there's no place for sin in the church. You come as a sinner. Every day you offend the Lord and you come and you confess and you repent and we take communion and we, we make a short sin list and we love him and we love that he loves us and we are fearful that he has the right to deal with our sin any way he wants, but it gives way to love and obedience as you grow. You know, we're not talking about perfect people. We're just talking about a continued tolerance of immorality that nobody's doing anything about. And on top of that, people are just saying, it's not a big deal, all right? This is, we don't judge. So Paul says in verse 10, he says, I did not mean at all immoral people of the world, you know. I, I'm not talking about them. Covetous, swindlers, idolaters. You know, if, if you had to stay away from every sinner, you couldn't be in the world. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in the church, Paul says. Okay, in the church. That's what I wrote to you about. What have I had to do with judging outsiders? Now, see, and here, when Paul says it, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Here's, I think, where we can get the sense that the woman in question here is probably not a believer. So he's talking about the guy, and that becomes the focus. He said, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Of course, she's an unbeliever. She's, she's, she's a swindler, she's an idolater, you know, all, all those things. I'm not judging her. She's already judged. Right? The Lord's already made it clear. I'm talking about people who are in the church. Don't you judge those who are within the church? I mean, it's just like, are you not able to discern the difference? What's the rhetorical answer to that question as it concerns unrepentant sin in the church? Yes, we're supposed to judge inside the church. Yes. Those who are outside, God judges. They're, they're already, if, they don't, if they're in an unredeemed state, they're under a curse, and, and without a change in track, they're on their way to eternal separation from God in hell. Okay, we're talking about people in the church. The church has to be pure, and the job and the responsibility of the church is not just to go and attend and sit there and watch what happens, but to seek out the purity of the church, and, and just so, you know, it's just so foreign to the church, and perhaps even falls hard on your ears right now. Because we've been taught to equate, catch this, we've been taught to equate the tolerance of sin with spirituality. We think somehow that that's, that's spirituality, tolerating sin constantly in the church, that that's equal to spirituality. And Paul says it's, it's not equal. So this is, this is serious business with Paul. And so at verse 2, he gives them this proper attitude about unrepentant sin inside the church. And then he gives the appropriate action for the unrepentant sin in the church. And if you're unsure about that, I'd like you to look up Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. And we'll look at that next week, Lord willing. Or Ephesians 5, 3 through, through 11, or 2 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Uh, we'll look at some of these. And, I, and you can kind of firm up that this is what's supposed to happen, okay, in case you're un, unaware. We'll look at those next week. But he says this, verse 2, he says, You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that this one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So early on, he says, listen, you should have already removed them. And what Paul is just summarizing is just summarizing excommunication. Paul says you need to get that person out of the church. Now, Paul's assuming, like we do, that they will reject the idea in their pride and arrogance and perhaps say, oh, no, 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 no. What they really need right now is the church. See, that becomes almost an automatic response anymore. Oh, no, 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 we don't want them out. What they really need is the church. See, but that isn't Paul's issue here, is it? The issue is the church. 
There is no question that this individual here in Corinth needed to be in the Word, okay? There's no question that he needed to rein his life in. The problem is that he wouldn't rein his life in, and that the church also was arrogant about it, and he was happily attending and feeling very comfortable. That was the problem. See, the issue is the church and the purity of the church. And if he won't repent then, he doesn't, here it is, catch this, beloved, it has to do with the church. It doesn't do the church a bit of good because he just brings about impurity and it just multiplies itself. Paul says, a little leaven, what? Leavens the entire loaf, okay? It all goes all through the whole thing. Listen, don't be fooled into thinking somehow that tolerance of sin equals spirituality. We are all sinners. We're not perfect. No question about it. We desire to know what's pleasing to the Lord. That's everybody's desire, right? And we don't always know that perfectly. But we desire that. And we come together as a fellowship and we encourage each other and we build each other up and we pray for each other and confess our sins to one another and be healed and all the things that happen when that happens. But beloved, when it becomes just this open, flagrant disregard for what the Word of God says and we don't do anything about it, that's a huge problem. And Paul says, you shouldn't have been arrogant about that. He said, you should have mourned like you'd lost a loved one. And he says, listen, if you had mourned like you'd lost a loved one, you'd do exactly what to do and you would have removed him from your midst. Because discipline is part of the responsibility of the church. So he has to be put out. And we're out of time today, so we're going to quit because we've got a, a missions moment. But we're going to see just what that looked like next time. So how, what, what pattern did Paul follow? And we'll, we'll give that process so that you can understand how that works. And, uh, and it's out of Matthew 18 again, which is a really great passage. All right? It starts early on talking about discipline, and it talks about forgiveness, and it talks about you know, total forgiveness of a person and then forgiving debt. It's just a great passage. It has a lot to, to say. We're going to look at that next time. And as it so happens, you know, when the church follows the instructions, listen, when the church follows the instructions from the Lord, good things happen. And as we look at 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6, it appears, now this is just foreshadowing next week, okay? It appears at Corinth, that they did do that, and he did repent and turn from his sin, and 2 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7 show that that's what happened. And the whole problem Paul's going to deal with is some people are still holding on to the fact that he caused a big row, and they don't like it. See, so Paul's going to say, okay, he's come to the point that he should have come, and the process worked, and he repented, now you need to forgive. And that's, that's how it all ties together. So I love this, um, how it connects us to the previous book, how it connects us to the reality of the church today, how it re refines our thinking as we think about, you know, being sinners and desiring to know what's pleasing to the Lord and tolerating sin flagrantly inside the church, how different those two things are. And so it's our joy, to, I, I think, to continue this passage. It shows the end of these things and the desired result that you want to see and it's going to give the church a chance to have the experiential knowledge of forgiveness, see? And it's going to reveal the blessings of doing that. Because at the end of this passage, it has to do with all the kind of cool stuff that happens when you have that experiential knowledge. So that's where we're headed. And I hope that you come uh, back next time and we can get into it, all right? Let's pray, and then we'll have a few quick announcements, and I'll invite uh, uh, Dr. Korn to come up and do our missions moment. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for its clarity. We are grateful that you've, you've elevated your word equal to your own name. Lord, I pray that um, this is just part, uh, that today, which is a part of, of all of our continuing fellowship in the word each week. That we're not just kind of checking in today and that's our only food, spiritual food, because if we did that, we're starving this morning. But instead, it was just what we've been doing all week and just encourages us 
as we look again at a different passage and we're able to come away with the things you'd like us to see. So Father, in that same light, I pray that as if I've said anything here um, where many words are, sin is not far away. If I've said anything here, it misrepresented what you have said. Lord, I pray that you just strike that. Help what your word says to be clear and help our folks to understand what that means and put that to work. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for the opportunity to bring the word and to teach it. Thank you for uh, all of us who have the same tutor and the same text, and we can learn these things on our own too. We're grateful for that. Lord, we thank you for, uh, in just a minute, as we recognize our graduates, we're grateful today, and my own heart is overflowing with the joy of, of seeing uh, my own children walk in truth and, and take next you know, milestones. And so I know all, uh, many parents, grandparents here today uh, feel the same way. We're grateful for that. That fellowship and joy and family and encouragement and blessing are all from you. You're a good father and you give good gifts. And so we praise you for that. We thank you for the week to come. Thank you for the final Awana meeting. We thank you for uh, be sure the little occur midweek that we'll have some fellowship and, and some small group uh, time in the word and prayer. Lord, I pray that you'll bless the teachers, those who serve. Thank you for all those who are serving downstairs now and giving of their time and all the different ministries and making sure our little ones know Lord, we're so grateful for the people who are at work here. And we give you praise today and all God's people said, amen.